Welcome back, everybody. I really didn't get into this on the last episode, but recently we had our podcast one-year anniversary. And there's one word that comes to mind for me when I think about this, the, the, that first season or the, the entire year, and that's wow. Wow is the word. It's been a lot of fun. And I really appreciate those of you that have tuned in every other Friday, and I really hope you'll continue to do that. Um, we got some great episodes lined up, and I'm, I'm excited to get everyone's feedback on them. I'm going to put a plug in here uh, to please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, so let's just jump into this episode. Today, I've invited Rich Lombard and Jeff Wasco from Guardian back onto the podcast. You might recall we had them in, in on the season one. And we're going to dive into everyone's favorite topic, favorite hot topic in Connecticut anyway, and that's paid family leave. So, guys, thanks for joining. Thanks, Rob. All right. Rich, let, let's start with you. And we're going we're gonna to stay uh, for, the, for the first couple of questions here focused on um, on Connecticut and New England. So, Rich, can you just walk us through high level what, what the paid family leave program is going to look like in Connecticut? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks again for having us on. So we talked a lot about it when we were on in the spring. So like you said, we'll just go through high level, take a few minutes. Overall, the, the law is pretty consistent with, with what we've seen in other states, right? So this is new for Connecticut, but it's not new for you know, other areas of the country. I mean, a lot of you are familiar or people are familiar with Massachusetts. Connecticut is essentially you know, a year behind Massachusetts, New York before that. New Jersey, right? These, these laws are popping up all over the place. Uh, and, and I say it's consistent, but every state has its quirks. Every state has its nuances. Every state's a little bit different. Uh, and Connecticut is certainly uh, no exception to that rule. But the, the law itself goes into effect uh, January 1st, 2022, right? So we're, we're over a year out from when the benefits actually go into effect. But consistent with other states like Massachusetts, like New York, there is a pre-funding period. And that pre-funding period starts January 1st, 2021. So we're only a few months out from that. So that pre-funding period, that just means you got to start paying deductions, right? The, the state is going to require that you pay if you're in the state for a full year in order to fund the program so that come January 1st, 2022, there's money to pay for the benefit. So what the program looks like overall, high level, uh, it's, the law is going to give each eligible employee paid family leave or paid leave for any number of reasons. And it can be for their own serious health condition, um, care for a family member, bonding, uh, military leaves. In, in Connecticut, it's a little unique. You can also take it for uh, leaves under the Family Violence Leave Act, bone marrow, uh, uh, bone marrow transfers, organ donors. It's, it's a very broad definition of, of why you can take a leave. Uh, essentially, all employers in Connecticut are going to be subject to the law. I mean, down to one employer, I'm sorry, one employee. Uh, outside of your uh, municipalities and your board of eds, essentially all employers are going to be eligible and essentially all employees are going to be eligible. Um, basically, if you work in Connecticut and you've earned over you know, $2,300 in what they're considering the base period, you are considered an eligible employee. So once again, very broad definitions of both employer and employee essentially encompassing the entire state. So uh, how, how long you can go out for, um, the state gives you 12 weeks. And it's gonna vary depending on what you're going out for, but the cap is 12 weeks of paid leave under the state program. Um, how much you get paid 
this is a little uh, confusing and once again, consistent with other states. It feels like a lot of these, uh, these definitions of these benefit calculations get a little confusing, but basically what you need to know is the income replacement percentage starts at 95%, okay? So uh, if you are earning 40 times minimum wage or less, which come 2022, you're looking at about $27,000 a year, you know, 500 or so dollars a week. Uh, if you're earning that much or less, you are gonna get 95% income replacement. Once you get over that threshold, once you're over that $27,000 a year or 500 or so dollars a week, the income replacement drops to 60%. Okay, so any income after that gets replaced at 60%. Now, there is a cap, just like every other state, just like every other you know, short-term disability program, there's a cap. Once again, that's based on minimum wage. It's 60 times minimum wage, which in 2022 is going to be about you know, $780. I, I keep going back to minimum wage because it is scheduled to increase all the way through 2023. So when the law goes into effect in 2022, it's going to be one number. But the year later, when the, uh, it goes up to $15 an hour, the minimum wage goes up to $15 an hour, that maximum is scheduled to go from $780 all the way up to $900. And that, that income replacement uh, of 95% for the first, you know, say 27,000 is actually scheduled to increase as well, probably up to the 31,000 or so range. So high level overview, there's certainly a lot more details that we'll probably hit on uh, through the rest of this podcast, but uh, that just gives you an idea. Okay, here's a a true false question. Hey, I offer my employees short-term disability, so I don't have to worry about the state paid family leave. False. Yeah, no, Jeff, it's the question we get all the time. Uh, we, We got it. All the time last year in Massachusetts, we're, we're getting in Connecticut. We're going to get it more often in Connecticut. Here's, here's sort of what I always tell people or the avenue that I lead them down when, when they make that assumption is, okay, let's start, let's start asking some questions, right? Because there's a laundry list of items that have to be included on a policy to satisfy an exemption uh, in Connecticut, in Massachusetts, whatever you name the state. Uh, but Connecticut is no different, right? So first things first, you've got a short-term disability policy. Let's assume it's a traditional, you know, fully insured program. Maybe it's a, you know, 60% to 1,000, 60% to 1,500, whatever. It's going to be only for your medical leaves. It's not for your family leaves. So right off the bat, you're eliminated, okay? So let's assume that maybe that's not the case. Maybe they've got a self-funded program. Maybe they've got you know, some kind of extended illness bank or a a generous PTO program that allows them to use it for both medical and family leaves. Okay, so maybe you do check that box. Let's talk about who's eligible for it. Because chances are pretty good. It's probably just your benefit eligible employees, right? 30 hours a week, full time. Everyone needs to be included under this program, full time, part time, seasonal, if they're making over that $2,300 limit uh, during the base period, they've got to be eligible for it. Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe you can tailor it to, to accommodate that. Are you going to cover former employees or does it cover former employees? Because under the plan, you have to cover former employees. I don't think I've ever seen uh, an employer voluntarily cover former employees. So long story short, as you start to go through some of these questions, and that's just a few, you can recognize pretty quickly that while you might have an, uh, an STD program or maybe you've got a short-term, uh, you know, you know, PTO, Salcon, EIB type program that's pretty rich, it, it's not going to provide the requirements that's needed to file for that exemption. So let's summarize. If you have employees in the state of Connecticut, and Rich, you don't have to be a Connecticut-based company, right? 
if you've got at least one employee in the state of Connecticut, you have to be aware of this and start taking action now if you haven't already. Absolutely. Fair enough? Absolutely. It's, it's uh, we, we kind of always say internally, like it's always where you work, right? In general, most of these statutory disability and paid family leave programs follow where you work. So if you've got employees working in Connecticut, whether it's one or a thousand, you, know, you need to be cognizant of this law because you're most likely going to be a, a covered employer and that employee is going to be a covered employee. Yeah. And you're not going to be exempt. <laughs> you're not, not going to be exempt. Correct. That's right. Okay. There's no escaping it. So, you know, given our, uh, given the geography of Southern New England and the proximity to Massachusetts, you know, we've got a lot of clients and there are a lot of companies that have folks who work in Mass and folks who work in Connecticut. And so I think we, we, we do have to talk a, a little bit about how the Connecticut uh, paid family medical leave is going to differ from Mass. And, you know, w w I guess one of the things we should start with is, correct me if I'm wrong, unless this has changed, I believe that, um, uh, that you can have a, a, in Massachusetts, you can have a private plan, so you could opt out of the, the state plan, right? And the same is gonna be true of Connecticut, but in Connecticut, employees have to vote for and approve by vote, majority wins on a private plan, right? Yeah, there's, um, there's certainly a lot of differences between the states, uh, but I'd say this is probably one of the biggest uh, for Connecticut, um, at least when you compare it to what we're experiencing in Massachusetts, New York, um, there is a vote requirement. And I think when we sat down this spring, we mentioned it uh, at the time, we weren't sure what the future was gonna hold of the vote, but uh, I'd say it became clear pretty quickly that the vote wasn't going away. Um, we have learned a little bit more about what the vote is going to entail uh, and how it can be done. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it, it exists. So you need to, if you want to go private, um, and keep in mind, a lot of this is still in the proposed stage, uh, but it's, it's certainly becoming more and more clear and we're getting more clarity, I'd say, daily or weekly, um, what it's going to look like. But it's still, I'd say, probably in the proposed stage. But you need the majority of your employees, your Connecticut eligible employees, which is a clear distinction that we actually just recently got because for a period we weren't sure whether this was all employees, like if you got locations in Massachusetts, New York, Vermont, wherever, and Connecticut, do all of them have to vote? Like when we were in, sitting with you in the spring, that was still in question. We did get clarity that uh, at this point, it's just the Connecticut eligible employees. You need the majority of them to vote to go private. Now what the majority means, at the time we didn't know, now that's been more clearly defined, it's 50% plus one, okay? It's also 50% plus one of your entire Connecticut eligible population, not just those who participate in the vote. So if you've got 50 employees in Connecticut and only 20 show up for the vote, you're, you're, you're already below the, the minimum. Um, right. Forget it. You're, you're locked into the, to the state plan at that point. Correct. Correct. Um, so there's still a lot that we don't know. Um, I shouldn't say a lot, but there's still a fair amount of important pieces that we don't know logistically about the vote, but they, we have been getting a lot more guidance over the last month or so. Um, there's been a, uh, a published for review sort of process of what it's going to look like. The vote itself has to follow 
similar guidelines to how you're distributing other, you know, legal documents, other benefit documents, just like you would with your, you know, workers comp, 401k, other benefits, it really needs to follow that same path. Um, you need to make sure that it's accessible, right? ADA compliant and any other, you know, state or federal disability um, laws need to be followed as far as making it uh, accessible for people. People who are out on leave also need to have it accessible to them. Um, so that there's a fair amount of requirements that are outlined. Uh, it also needs to be done anonymously and it needs to be um, basically auditable. Someone needs to be able to independently go and take a look and make sure that this was done appropriately. So they do outline some, you know, some guidelines there as far as what you need to follow. Um, the authority actually in this uh, document specifically suggests um, using electronic methods to do it, uh, to make it accessible for the most amount of people. Um, and I think that's you know, what, what most employers would want to do is use some type of electronic form to, to do this. Well, so, okay, so the, the, the premium or, or the payroll tax starts happening January 2021, right? Correct. And so theoretically, like if, if an employer is going to do a vote, they've got to they jump on this now, right? Because, uh, because you want to make that, you want to have that decision made prior to the payroll tax coming out. Is that, am I missing something here? No, you're not missing anything. Uh, it's certainly, uh, time is of the essence. Uh, the clock is ticking. Um, and I imagine most employers want to make this decision, uh, sooner rather than later. I mean, I'd say yeah. in, in, you know, in Massachusetts at this point last year, uh, we were, we were sort of already going through the quoting and exemption process. Um, we're, we're, we're speeding up here in Connecticut. I'd say we're getting information uh, quickly over the last several weeks, um, but we're still not at a point yet where you know there's there's exemptions at least that I'm aware of being filed. And I imagine most employers are probably going to want to be doing that very quickly. Well, do, are, do, do we even know what the private plans are going to be priced like, or what the what the plans like? Do we, do we have any detail? Like, what do we have to put in front of the employees to vote on at this point? Jeff, I'll let you take that one. Yeah, great question. So right now, there's still probably too many unknowns in order to uh, effectively price the product for carriers. So we're all trying to work with the authority to finalize some of the regulations on exactly what will be part of the benefit and in the law. And then you can do a better job of determining how it's going to be priced. The authorities also, and they've laid out some preliminary uh, wording around how you will waive out of a plan, a wave out of the state plan into the private plan. So there needs to be a some finalization on the benefits so the private market can develop and know how to price the product. And then there needs to be a process that's published in a probably likely a portal that's built by Connecticut for a process to be followed to actually wave out and get the approval from the authority to wave out of the, the program. And you, we do think that there's gonna be a, a kind of a rush uh, to wave out or an opportunity to wave out because one of the key points is that that payroll tax starts on 1-1-2021. But if you wave out into a private plan, it's likely not going to start for you until 1-1-2022. Right, because so it's not. It's, there's a big financial incentive to, to wave into a private plan. Yeah, and to be clear, the financial incentive, incentive is to the employees. Correct. Because the tax is on the employee's pay. Yes. 
So the employees, it's the, the way the Connecticut structured it is there's no requirement for the employer to pay, to pay any of the premium. The employees are responsible for the premium. They could have an employer that says they yeah. would like to pay the premium. That is allowed yeah. under the, under the, the regs. But, you know, we'll have to determine and see what, what uh, Connecticut employers choose to do. So let's say the employer says, wow, geez, you know, I, I, I didn't have time to get it together for a vote by, you know, by December of 2020 for, for a January decision. So I've got no choice but to actually start the payroll deduction and, and to the, the payroll tax. And, and, and then, you know, six months later, they decide, you know what, we, we really want to wave out of the state plan and we want to go with a private plan but they've already collected all this premium from their employees. Can they give that money back to the employees or what happens to that money then? Yeah, so that hasn't been kind of ruled on by the authority, so that's TBD. Oh, okay. Like I say happened in Massachusetts and the, the law's a little different in Mass, there's no vote in Massachusetts. And depending on the size of the customer, there actually is an employer required contribution in Massachusetts. So it's not, it's not apples to apples, but they're very similar, close, close cousins. And what the way that Massachusetts works, which would be potentially a proxy for Connecticut, is that that money does not go back. The, the state would keep that money, but you can waive out on a quarterly basis even after 1121. So you could save on three quarters of the tax versus all of the tax if you waived out during the first quarter of 2021. Oh, I see. Okay. So, I, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to reduce the sense of urgency here or belittle it here, but I mean, you, you can, you can get, you can get into a private plan, even if you haven't done it by January 1st, 2021. The, the, the problem is that probably there's some employee money that they've coughed up that they're, that they're not going to get back. It would, would, would be our guess at this point, right? Exactly. So the, yeah. the, the, once the regulations are formalized so that people know how to waive out of, and, and get, apply for and get approved for a private exemption, carriers can finalize what, how they're going to price and you know, build the product. And employers know how to conduct a vote. Those are the really three kind of missing pieces that hopefully will be finalized very quickly because, Jeff, as you mentioned, you know, the time, the clock's ticking. And you know, it's, it's urgent because for the most part, I think you're going to see employers at least being interested in a private market, whether they go there or not, that, you know, we'll, we'll find out, but I think there'll at least be, there's definitely interest in the marketplace. I just want to complete the conversation on the differences. You, you, you just mentioned that Jeff, there are some other differences and nuances between mass and Connecticut. What, what, what did we miss? What other kind of big differences are there? Is it, doesn't Connecticut expand the definition of a quote unquote family member too, is that? They, uh, they do. So there's, there's a number of, um, I mentioned in the beginning, right? It, it, it follows the same general guidelines as most states do, but, uh, but everyone has their quirks. And I would say this is uh, one of Connecticut's quirks. So uh, as far as covered family members go, um, it's going to cover, you know, and when I say covered family members, you can go out on leave for the care of one of these family members, right? So your spouse, your children, your parents, those are what everyone's familiar with because that's what FMLA covers. Um, New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut also cover for domestic partners. They cover for grandparents and they cover for grandchildren. Um, Connecticut and Massachusetts also cover siblings. New York doesn't. Uh, and then Connecticut's the only one that covers those whose close association uh, the employee shows to be equivalent of a family member, essentially. 
Um, that's going back to broad definitions. That's about as broad as it gets. Yeah. Uh, so we'll, time will tell what that all shakes out to be and what that's going to look like. That's uh, up to the authority to sort of uh, define and, and regulate. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly a nuance that you don't see in other states, um, such as Massachusetts, New York, um, and, you know, a few other statutory states. And you could have a, you could have a, you know, a, an uncle that lives in your parents' basement and, you know, you have dinner with them every Tuesday and Thursday night that, that could be, you know, by that broad definition, potentially, you know, covered under this program. Absolutely. I mean, I don't see why not. I, there, there hasn't been enough of a, a clarity, and I guess we wouldn't expect maybe clarity at this point, but I imagine over the next year, as things get more formalized, we'll probably get some better definitions around that. Um, yeah. But it goes without saying, it's going to be, it's going to allow for interpretation, and um, it'll be, I'm sure we'll all have some interesting stories over time, as <laughs> people going out for a myriad of reasons, for sure. Jeff, I guess I'll throw this one to you. So, you know, we, we talked about the vote, and I guess I would call that an administrative burden on the employer. But what other, what, what else can employers expect from an administrative standpoint? What are they going to have to do? What kind of problems might they face from a, a, an admin standpoint um, regarding this new law? Yeah, so what becomes clear for employers as they start digging through this is uh, the first one, is most, and we saw this in Massachusetts and in New York, they maintain if they offer a short-term disability product, they keep it because the laws are different, the benefits are different, and the durations could be different. Again, they're, they're, they're probably not even close cousins at this point based on how different the, uh, the laws are. So that's like the first aha moment. I think some employers naturally assume, all right, I'm just gonna get rid of my STD program. I have this new PFML law that I'm required to have and it's gone and, and for a number of reasons, they, they don't do that. They end up realizing that they should maintain their STD program, which then gets them to thinking more holistically around how do they want to manage absences in general. So you kind of have three big pieces to the absence management puzzle that's coming in Connecticut. You have your PFML, which we're talking about, short-term disability, which I just mentioned, and then third is federal FMLA laws and potential state laws that apply based on different size segments, right? So generally FMLA is on, on groups that are 50 or more uh, lives and there's some nuances to that. But that's the federal law that protects leave. It's not a paid benefit, but it protects leave. And they all, they all have different durations. They have different regulations, different rules that you have to follow. And what we found in New York, what we're finding right now in Massachusetts and even a little bit earlier in the year in Massachusetts is there's a rush to outsource all three. That the employers say that enough is enough. I, it's just too complex regulatory wise for, for us to administer all these programs on our own because many administer FMLA on their own. And so they outsource FMLA. They probably already have STD or it's self-funded. They decide to outsource it. And then now they're required to buy a, in Connecticut, a PFML product. So you have these three coming under one, uh, one program is what customers want. So they, they, what we find is that customers prefer not to chop it up. You're not going to have, you know, each one of those programs with different vendors or carriers uh, because the customer experience becomes much more important 
and integrating and communicating and piecing together who has what and when in terms of benefits and laws and certifications that need to go out from a legal standpoint. So yeah. it's really kind of a rush to, I call it a, uh, like an Apple like experience where you just turn it on, you press a button and everything syncs and works. That's where customers, that's what they want when it comes to dealing with absences and so do their employees. It, 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 I mean, it's, it's, it's a little more than a flip of a switch. I, I, I think that you're, you're right. That that's the step. Number one is just kind of outsource the whole lead management, but, but there is a, you need some lead time there to get it, to get it set up, to implement it. Right. I, I just want to get, give people the right expectation that getting set up for, for outsourcing your lead management is going to require a little upfront effort. Correct. For hundred percent, I, I yeah. used this example on our pack podcast a year ago. So if you watched it, thank you. If not, or listen to it, thank you. If not, go check it out. But I'll use it again because it's just I think it's a really good uh, example. Is it's like rush hour traffic. You know, if you leave the office at five o'clock on a Friday and you want to hit to the beach or up to the mountains to get away uh, in the summertime, in, in the normal course of everything, you know, pre-pandemic, it's you, you're gonna it's gonna take you three hours, right? If you would have left at Thursday at lunchtime and it might have taken you 50 minutes. And <laughs> so it, bo it bottlenecks and you really want to get way in front of it because you're going to have every customer or every employer in the state of Connecticut looking to outsource around the same time if you wait until kick the can down the road until the end of 2021. You really want to get your arms around all of this as soon as possible. Jeff, uh, um, I think when we talked in the spring, there were, oh boy, my memory is tough, but either nine or 11 states, maybe it was nine who had passed paid family leave laws, and there were a bunch of others considering it. What, what, what's the number at now? Like how many states actually have passed paid family leave legislation? Yes, yeah, so there's eight states that have formally passed it and are working on going live and by state and including the district of Columbia. So, okay. uh, it, it, so there's, there's eight, uh, but now there's, is, uh, you know, more than half of the remaining states have pending legislation, uh, hmm. that, you know, maybe it passes, maybe it doesn't certainly with all things pandemic related, it's, you know, top of mind in a lot of people, right? They have kids in school and there's, there's their homeschooling or hybrid approaches. And a lot of people are doing that, or, you know, uh, there's a, there's a multi-generational workforce where people are, you know, their parents live with them now and they're taking care of their parents. These are very popular benefits, which is ultimately why one reason they're passing because legislators, you know, they, they're elected by the people and they want to represent the people and they want to get reelected. Mm -hmm. And these are very, very popular benefits. So, they end up getting passed. You also see private companies leaning in heavily, like us at Guardian, we, we have some really rich PFML uh, offerings and bonding leaves already prior to, prior to some of these laws uh, taking into effect, and other employers are doing it as well because they realize that having this customer experience and benefit around a really robust assets management policy that's flexible and rich for their employees helps them retain, recruit, the top talent. So yeah. it, it becomes a serious employee benefit uh, versus just a checkbox. Like, do you offer short-term disability? Now it's, well, do you offer bonding leave? You know, what's your paternity leave? I have a sick spouse or a parent that I need to take care of. What's your leave policies around that? And then how do you actually administer that? Like the, the, the employee, the prospective employee is probably not asking that question, but when they go out as an employer, you want them to have a really good experience. Yeah with a company that has experience in administering those programs.
Yeah, Jeff, what we're finding in Massachusetts is right now we're getting in really in-depth conversations about um, what they're doing with their existing leave programs, right? Because you've got a lot of clients, a lot of, a lot of employers who have um, longstanding salary continuation programs, right? Extended illness banks, PTO banks. All of a sudden, uh, a state law like this comes into play and it's how do you integrate it? You know, how, how are you going to work around this? And we're finding a lot of employers are taking the opportunity to kind of go back to the drawing board and design a program that's going to integrate well with what they're being, what's being pushed upon them, right, through, through the state plan. And, and sort of taking it as the opportunity to say, hey, listen, we've had this program for a lot of years. Let's, let's double check and make sure it's still working. And mm-hmm. if not, right, maybe we make some enhancements. Maybe we tailor some things down and we get it to the point where it's going to work well going forward. Uh, it goes into what Jeff was saying is, you know, it's an important benefit that employees are looking at. Um, and I think a lot of employers are looking and saying, now's a good time to reevaluate what we're offering. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great advice. So you've got all these states, you know, eight states that are already impl- implemented or implementing and, and, and a bunch of others contemplating all the more reason really you, you, you've got to think hard about, you know, outsourcing your leave and, um, Jeff, since your your scope is a little broader than than just Connecticut, Massachusetts, I, I'll ask you. You know, do you what what are your what are your clients experiencing? What's happening when when customers decide? Oh, you know, I could do this myself, and I'm just going to go to the state plan. I'm not going to go to a private plan. And uh, like, what's going on in other states, if anything, that that can shed some light on or give or or sort of inform folks of what they might want to do here in Connecticut. Yeah, so we hear feedback from when they take that approach, right? And for all the right reasons, it may have made sense for them at the time. Sure. When when it goes claim ready and their employees and I, you know, want to have this experience, right? And that it's really smooth. So, for example, when they start digging into the details and realizing, okay, I have my PFML directly with the state, I'm doing. FMLA internally, and then I have short-term disability with a carrier. And so if I, I, I have to, my, and the person that's out, unless it's maternity related, which is a joyous occasion, it's some type of injury or illness that could be catastrophic in that person and their family's life. So yeah. they're not going through an easy time in their life. So you're asking that person that is disabled or taking care of someone that is a serious medical condition or going on a military leave or these other examples that Rich mentioned at the beginning, to uh, administer and, and file documentation to three different entities. They're gonna get, so they have to do the same type of paperwork three times, and then they got, yeah. and they're gonna get responses from three different people and three different contacts. And it becomes really confusing and cumbersome on the member. And so what we find when they take that approach, they, they, they start realizing when they have people experiencing that, that that's probably not the best customer facing approach for their, and by customer, I mean for their employees. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff, I mean, two of those three entities, it's not their core competency to, to be, you know, a, a quote unquote insurance company or to admit it like that's not what they do. The states, I don't know, I don't think state states were built to do this. It's not a core competency of a state or of a government and it's not uh, of most employers either. So, right. I mean, how could it it's a great point. Like, you know, it's you're, number one, you're going to these different entities, but number two. They're not all really built to do this. Yep. So it's, I equate it to 
if you have to have heart surgery, do you do you go to the person that's still in medical school and eventually maybe they're going to be a fantastic heart surgeon? I hope they are for all the right reasons. Or do you go to the person that's done this that surgery you need sixty thousand times? Yeah, I know what my answer is. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, that's that's the, the question that employers uh, across the country and very soon in Connecticut are going to have to make. It's a great analogy. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, though. You know, if you've got ten employees, uh, and and of course, remember we said one employee in Connecticut. You you've got to be thinking about this, right? And so, if you've got ten employees, can you even find someone that will administer your 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 leave? The FMLA doesn't apply there, so that's good news for that Connecticut-based employer, really any employer across the country that's that small. Yeah. So you kind of can take FMLA off the table, so that that's a good thing. But they still are going to have to look at the PFML in Connecticut, as well as if they offer short-term disability or want to continue to offer short-term disability, looking at that product. So you can find on that those smaller size segment, there are carriers of, uh, like Guardian that will administer short-term disability. Yeah. Still to be determined based on the final regs where the private marketplace for Connecticut PFML develops on the smaller size segment. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So, so you'll go down to, you'll go down market and you'll, you have short-term disability plans and, and it sounds like you plan on being one of the private plan uh, options within the state of Connecticut for the Connecticut paid family leave. And so that could put it all under one umbrella for those smaller employers. Yeah. We're really, you know, as, as a business, we're really, uh, we see the trends, right? We see our customers. We listen to our customers. They're telling us that their employees want these benefits, right? They're, yeah. Like I mentioned, they're extremely popular. There's a lot of states that have passed them or are pending passing them. So we're building out all the, the, the experience to have this you know, one-stop shop where you can go and outsource your absence management, FMLA, STD, the PFML, and whatever state you're in uh, with Guardian. Right, we'll have that capability if the private market develops in that way in a particular state. So what do we miss? And any other updates in the Connecticut, specifically the Connecticut paid family leave, Rich, maybe is there, is there something that, that you want to talk about that we didn't get to yet or, or updates that uh, you wanted to share with us? No, I, I don't think so. I'd say um, we're, I mentioned earlier, we're seeing um, more information come quickly, obviously with the, the time constraint or the, you know, not hard deadline, but the deadline we talked about of deduction starting uh, the first of the year, we're starting to see information and clarity come to us faster and faster. And we'll certainly make sure that we're keeping all of our you know, broker partners and clients up to date. Um, what we said in Massachusetts is what I've been telling people in Connecticut, which is it can be overwhelming to think about everything all at once. Uh, break it down, right? This fall, like decision one really needs to be, what are you going to do? Are you going to go, are you going to go to the state or are you going to go to a private carrier, right? And once you've gotten over that hurdle, get through the holidays, get through the first of the year, then refocus and then we can start to have those conversations like we are in Massachusetts now about what's the future of you, you know, plan holder, client, employer, um, you know, what's the future of your short-term disability, your short-term medical, your short-term family leave, what's that going to look like, right? What, what's the program look like now? What's it going to look like in a, a year from now? And how can we make the experience best for, for your employees and then for you as well? Because we talked a lot about how that single intake is, is great for the employees and it is, but let's face it, when it's not a good experience for the employee, 
who gets impacted? The employer, right? They're, they're going to try to go to all these different sources to try to get the information that the employee can't get or is having a hard time getting, and they're trying to coordinate it behind the scenes for the employee. So getting it all under one roof is, is beneficial for, for really all parties. So I guess the advice would be get through the first hurdle of exemptions. Um, once we get some more clarity around that, then coming into the next year, really refocus on what your plans look like and building out something that's sustainable and scalable uh, coming into 2022 and beyond. Rich, I just, that, that, I'm sorry, it led me to one other question and, and, or, or thought, which is, could you even right now venture to guess when the carriers who are going to offer private plans, private plan solutions, are going to be able to actually quote, to, you know, to, to quote on this in Connecticut? You know, I, I'd hesitate to put a date on it. Um, yeah. I, I, I hope it's soon. I know that's a really vague, generic answer. Um, Jeff, maybe you've got a better answer, but uh, I, I hope soon. There's just there's there's still some outstanding information that I think the entire industry is waiting for before anybody sort of jumps headfirst into it. But Jeff, if you've got better better a better answer than that, certainly pass it along. Uh, all I can say is I hope it's sooner. <laughs> so that's uh, we're waiting on the the regs, the final regs. All the carriers are to see exactly how you can, you know, price, educate, help people with the vote, and then and work through the market. But, you know, we're hoping that this does happen rather quickly, given the 1121 uh, waiver for the taxes, uh, because we want to help, uh, you know, our customers and, and our broker partners through that process. Awesome. Guys, thanks so much for joining us again. A lot, clearly a lot has happened since we talked last spring and uh, it's, it's the pace is very quick now. So folks have to keep their eyes on this. Uh, stay in touch with your, your one digital uh, broker and consultant to make sure you're, you're on top of it. I think, so remember last time we did this guys, we had some parting questions just to let the audience get to know you a little bit better. So we're going to do the same this time, but they're different questions. Are you, are you ready to do that? Some rapid fire questions? Let's do it. All right. So here we go, guys. And you know what? After each question, Rich, you go first. And then Jeff, after Rich answers, you can answer. Fair? Works. All right. Cats or dogs? Dogs. I'd go dogs. Favorite band? Red Hot Chili Peppers. Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Fly. I'm going to give you two. Time travel and I would cure disease. If you weren't doing what you're doing today, what would you be doing? I would be, if I had the capabilities to do it, I'd be, I'd be building houses. I would be an astronaut. Finally, guys, our theme at One Digital this year is being bold. So I want to ask each of you, what does being bold mean to you? Uh, I think it's I think it's doing things that you maybe aren't necessarily comfortable with, um, that takes you outside of your comfort zone, and it doing things for the right reasons with the right intentions with integrity. And yeah, I'd say that's that's a good definition of being bold. Yeah, it's a uh... Being a collaborative disruptor, the, the world and the marketplace feels like it's changing so rapidly because it is. And yet you still, being a disruptor means you, you still have to work with people and collaborate and, and build partnerships. And, you know, as Rich just mentioned, do it the right way with, uh, with integrity and, and ethics. Collaborative disruptor. 
Awesome. Guys, thanks again for joining us today. Uh, everyone, if you're, if you're still itching for some more information relative to Connecticut Paid Family Leave, um, we recently hosted a webinar with Andrea Barton-Reeves, who's the CEO of the Paid Leave Authority in Connecticut. And Rich was there as, as well, so uh, as, and, and a couple of folks from our One Digital Internal Task Force on the issue. So uh, you can go find that on demand uh, on our website or via the link in the description of this podcast episode. So go check that out if, if you haven't listened to it yet. Uh, as always, everyone, thank you for tuning in. This has been yet another episode of Friends with Employee Benefits and HR.